everyone. Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian. I'm so glad that you could join us today. As you can see here, I'm not alone. I have my friend Connor on. Connor, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's great to have you on. We've known each other for a few years now, I believe, but I think this is the first time we're having a conversation like this for the public to see. So people are going to see what sort of happens when a couple of theology guys online now have a conversation. The world's getting another inside look. So looking forward to it. And as the title, people are reading it and know what's going on with the series, different Christian denominations, traditions are on. You're here going to tell us about Lutheranism, which is exciting. I think a lot of people from my circles, evangelical Baptist, Lutheranism might be a bit of a mystery. And is it just Roman Catholicism, but Protestant, or is it super Protestant and uh, German Protestantism? A lot of maybe misconceptions or misunderstandings, but we'll get those cleared up. We'll heal, hear about the history, what it's like in the churches. But before we dive in, I want to give you a chance, let people know who you are, what you're about, and what you're doing. Sure. So uh, yeah, my name is Connor Longafee. I come from southern Ontario. Right now I'm living uh, just 30 minutes south of Owen Sound, not to dox myself, but uh, <laughs> I went, I did my undergraduate at the uh, rival school of Christians uh, Baptist Seminary. I went yes. to Toronto Baptist Seminary. I'm actually wearing the wearing the logo oh, on my, uh, my school colors so that we could have one of our rival soccer matches in this Zoom. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I did my pastoral ministry certificate at the Institute of Lutheran Theology. Uh, that's about a year uh, certificate. And I'm finishing up my MDiv work now at Luther House of Study, which is uh, a part of Sioux Falls Seminary in South Dakota. I do that online. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm studying there under uh, Dr. Stephen Paulson and Dr. Chris Krogan and Dr. Sarah Stenson. Uh, to any Lutherans who may be, uh, or anybody who knows Lutheranism, Dr. Paulson is a big name. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, some alarms might go off in their their heads and they may know exactly what kind of Lutheran it's, uh, I, I am now, but uh, right. I also uh, run the Canadian Lutheran Gospel Network. Uh, and that is a uh, conglomerate multimedia network of the Canadian Association of Lutheran Congregations, which is the synod that I'm a part of. I'm a part of two synods. The second is an American counterpart called the Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ. Mm. And uh, if you go to the Canadian Lutheran Gospel Network, you'll find lots of different things. You'll find a sermon feed of all of our pastor's sermons, a Bible study feed of all of our recorded Bible studies from all of the different pastors. You will find a, a, a confession study of the Book of Concord, kind of like a catechesis class you will find uh, an apologetics thing uh, a study of lutheran books you will find a history and church history and historical theology podcast that i mainly work on with another man called pastor roland who's a pastor out in medicine hat alberta and that's called blood and bone uh and we we do most of our work there uh, me and and pastor roland um and we also have a flagship podcast where we put the big big uh, episodes that are done with the Senate president. Uh, I also have a personal podcast where I put up all of my sermons, all of my Bible studies and everything that I do and work on, which is called Transcendent Truth. That's been my uh, brand for some years now, back since uh, first year of my undergraduate. So if anybody's interested in any of the work I'm doing there, they can go to those websites. Uh, any other information about me, I'm a father, I'm a husband. Um, and I'm in my last uh, week of my vicarage, which uh, some people might know uh, to be an internship or a super internship. Right. Um, and so uh, I have received my first call. And in a few weeks, I will be uh, an ordained pastor. So that's all about me. Yeah. Also, my favorite color is orange. Oh, 
Thank you very much. That And what a timely color. Good. Glad to hear that. So that, wow, you got a lot going on. So people, if you're interested, may, maybe this interview will be a bit of a teaser or a trailer or something along those lines. If anything Connor mentioned sound uh, interesting or fascinating, especially if you want to learn more about Lutheranism and get into the church history, that side of things, links will be in the description. I'll get at least a few of those. You can check out his writing, the podcast and everything there. So, and as uh, Connor mentioned, yes, we have a bit of a a rivalry between our, our two uh, seminaries, uh, TBS and Heritage, have uh, I, th I think a friendly rivalry. There's uh, I think it's a lot of brotherhood there, but that's fantastic yeah. to to hear. And that that's one of the things. Sad to see Connor not in the Baptist world anymore. But I think that's what makes this interview super helpful for my largely Baptist audience. Connor knows the language, similar circles here, so I think we'll have a lot of good things to discuss and hopefully things where I think people already got a sneak preview with Lutheranism, understanding the landscape. There's a lot of synods and acronyms and different things like that, but you, you know what, what we're about and what we're familiar with. So I think you'll do a great job explaining. So that's a lot, but let's dive in with a few of these questions that we have about other Christian traditions, denominations. And uh, I think Lutheranism, there's a lot of history that people might be familiar with in a general sense. I think when it comes to most other Protestant traditions, let, let's just keep it there for a moment. People typically know the story when it comes to Luther and Lutheranism, at least those early years, since we all look back to that as maybe our starting point in a certain sense, or the place that we really latch onto with uh, our history. So why don't you just back us up a bit to Lutheranism and maybe, I don't know how you want to take this, if you want to go pre-Luther into Luther or what came after Luther. I know for Lutherans that it's a lot of what came after the figure of Martin Luther that they'll look to with confessional documents and history and movement. So feel free, Connor, take us wherever we need to go okay. and let us know about the origins of Lutheranism. Yeah, so particularly I want to go before Luther and there's a particular reason why. Um, and we'll get to why that is uh, in just a bit. But um, yeah, it's true. You know, in a sense, when we are looking at Lutheran history, no matter whether we're Lutheran, Baptist, um, some kind of evangelical or Presbyterian, we all look at Luther as part of our history as Protestants. And in a way, I really want to stress the before Luther in part, not entirely, but in part, because the before Luther and the Luther himself is all of our histories. Mm. And, and it's really important to know that less, less less, less, less important to know about the Lutheran confessions. And we'll get into why even for Lutherans. Mm. But so before we have Luther, we have the medieval German and European context, right? And as some of you might know, from just your Protestant history, uh, there was something that the Roman church was doing called indulgences. Mm. Uh, as well as this, there were many different kinds of greed, mismanagement, spiritual abuses in the Roman Catholic institution at the time. But one of the chief insults that Luther was getting most mad about were indulgences, where Rome was sending people in so they'd have a building project. This was what was happening at the time. They had a very large building project. I won't mention which one. You can go look it up. Um, and so they needed to fund for it. And so they said, you know what would be a fun idea? How about we tell people that uh, they're all, all their grannies and their uncles are in hell or purgatory. Uh, and so we'll go and how about we, uh, 
we tell them to pay some money to get their uh, grannies and their uncles out of purgatory. You know, when a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, they would say. And um, this offended Luther. It offended many, many people. But this wasn't the only abuse, right? There was also great immorality in the clergy uh, and religious orders, the monks, the nuns, etc. Um, there was a lot of uneducated priests, not even to mention the uneducation that was going around in the laity. And there was useless, I say useless, with an emphasis on useless scholasticism. Uh, we, we have the joke of people talking about how many angels can fit on the, can dance on the point of a needle. These were things that were being discussed. What was not being discussed was the care of souls and of sinners and how to save them, um, because that wasn't really part of the scheme. Um, if you want to talk about saving sinners, then you're going to talk about the building project and getting them <laughs> to give you some money. So right. you can see the huge problems that would arise from this, right? And, and at the same time, this was a perfect soil for revolution and reform, especially because printing of books um, was becoming a thing very mm. soon. And so when Luther comes on the scene, we have this guy, right? He's, he's, he's not only um, a scholarly man, but he's an Augustinian monk. He takes his faith very, very seriously. He takes theology very, very seriously. He's very rooted in the fathers. He's very rooted in the scriptures. He was an Old Testament professor, particularly. Mm. Um, and uh, um, he, a lot of people label him with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And what this means is that he was focusing upon um, the wrath of God. And he was constantly going back to the point of saying, how can God love me if I'm such a sinner? And he would go back to confession and back to confession. And it would not uh, soothe his soul. Because especially back in that time, you'd go to confession and what would you hear? Now do penance. Mm. Right. Well, what if I didn't do the penance right or have perfect uh, contrition? What if I didn't do the contrition properly? Right. So what Luther was looking for was a salvation that was given freely as gift from God himself, not one that he had to do or one that he had to partake in or mm. contribute to. He needed comfort. And this is one of the very unique things about Lutheranism is that in many different groups of Protestantism, we can go back and say this is a founding, a founding figure, even one single founding figure, which is usually not correct. But right. um, we can go back to at least one, maybe a few. With Luther, this founding figure's motivation wasn't even a rigor for academia or even a passion for truth. It was a need for the comfort of his soul, right? Mm. So who better to go and feed the sheep than a hungry sheep? Right. So right. that's kind of the movement that you're looking at. And that really is what shaped Lutheranism going forward. And it did give it some unique uh, contours and characteristics. Now, moving forward, then, in Luther's uh, experience, he was teaching some lectures um, through Paul mostly. But so he started in the Psalms. He worked through Romans. He worked through Galatians, Ephesians. These were some of the books that drew him to what we now call the Protestant gospel especially Romans 1 verse 17, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you go and you pick up his, even it's a pre-Reformation, it's pre-1517, I believe it's a 1515. I have it, I have it right here. Uh, this one, nice. yep. if you can go and pick up this, uh, it's backwards because of the camera, but um, at least in the way I see it in the camera. But so if you go and read that, you'll see that that spark of the Reformation is there. Now, it wasn't quite there. And so we say when he gets to 1517, you know, he nails the 95 theses on the door. That's mainly about the abuses 
and the indulgences. Most Roman Catholics now would agree with the 95 Theses. Most Protestants would not. Uh, and so the 95 Theses are not a Protestant document. They're not a Lutheran document. And it's between 1517 and 1521, which is the Diet of Worms, where he, you know, he does all the things here. I stand, blah, 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 can't do anything else, blah, 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 burn the books, no thanks, that stuff, right? Between 1517 and that, that's when Lutheranism really becomes Lutheranism, the way that we understand it. The Evangelish, uh, or however they say it. It becomes that. It becomes the gospel faith. And so he, he's writing books. He's writing, for example, the Heidelberg Disputation. He's writing uh, Babylonian Captivity of the Church. He's writing on the freedom of a Christian. He's, he's writing all of these really, really solid, solid gospel books. He's writing commentaries. Um, and, and so these are the books that form Lutheranism. And, and they're publishing like wildfire. They're getting into the hands of the lady. Everyone's reading this. And so everybody's invested in this. And you have this movement of people who've been convinced, radically changed in their minds and their hearts and their hands by the gospel, which was written and preached in this time from between 1517 to 1521. And so it's not so much, and this is what is emphasized by the guys you mentioned earlier, that it's not so much a Luther movement, as much as Luther said some things, a bunch of people became affected by it and then they pushed him and strengthened him to go forward with what no man could ever have done by themselves so this is a preaching movement but it's a holy spirit movement and it's a congregational movement and we want to hold those three things in tandem that it's not luther coming out and speaking truth where there was none but it's luther by in spite of himself, the Holy Spirit is speaking truth through him, and all the people are holding him to it and saying, you stick with that. You don't, don't you dare deny that now, that you've gone and you've given us free forgiveness, right? And, and we can debate, and it is debated, whether the Heidelberg Disputation 1518 is when Luther got it. Uh, mm. Some say yes, some say no. But the important thing is, by the time of 1521, the Diet of Worms, he had it, and right. he was preaching it and teaching it. And everyone was accepting it and receiving it in faith. That's the important thing. And just before we move on from Luther, it does need to be mentioned, of course, that um, uh, Luther was not a Calvinist. Um, right. Just so we have that clear. And then this mistake comes from people who only read the bondage of the will. And then they say, well, that's Calvinism. Right. Um, most Lutherans might even say the same thing, right? And the important thing to remember is um, when the Lutherans did confess the doctrine of election, which is Article 11 in the Formula of Concord, mm. we did not agree with the bondage of the will. Um, oh. So wow. just, just keep that in mind. Not everything Luther wrote is in uh, the confessional documents. Not all Lutherans agree with Luther on everything. Some, Luther, some Lutherans agree with Luther over and against the, the Book of Concord. That's also something to keep uh, in uh, your minds. And um, mm. so, yeah, uh, moving forward, then that affected lots of churches. Melanchthon came along, a secondhand man, wrote about half of the Book of Concord. Right. Um, and then you have the Lutheran divines, et cetera, the confessional writers. But what's really important, is that early bit from 1517 to 1521, because that not only influenced the Lutheran church, that influenced all of Protestantism. Mm. So, yeah, no, that that's fantastic, Connor. And I, I have to first say, I have a few comments, but wow, that is, 
you're an amazing storyteller. People check out his podcast and his stuff that if you're into church history, just the way he's describing it right now, this is why so many of us are into church history. It is fascinating. It has so much color and depth. Check it out. Listen to Connor. He, I'm sure he's got a lot more material like this, but on, on what you just said now, I, I have to, I think I have three things I want to maybe comment on and then a question after that to, to get a bit deeper. So first thing I, I think we have to note here from what Connor is saying at the start, where people think about the Reformation, they think about that history, they think uh, academic ivory towers, books being flung at each other. And that that is a part of the story. There were the theologians and the, the doctors and the professors debating. And of course, there this isn't a hard distinction. But I think what people really needed to hear right now is that this was a pastoral movement, it sounds like. There was a genuine concern. But before we get to how we spell out the theology, people could just look at the landscape of the church during those times and say, something's wrong here. We we know what the Bible says. We know who Jesus was. And we're looking at the church and there's a mismatch here. There's the immorality. There's the, the indulgence situation. I think it's easy. It becomes a word now. But I think people, if you were to think about that, how distressing that would be for souls thinking, oh my goodness, my dear aunt is trapped away in purgatory. And the only way to get her out is if I offer up my my money that I, I hard earned during this hard time and thinking like that. So, and uh, people know this, my family is German. So these are stories that we, we sometimes hear. And I think it's easy to forget maybe in North America and other places, but how, how hard the times were during the Reformation. And of course the wars that followed that these were real people in those situations hearing this theology. This wasn't in their history textbooks. And of course, you have the pastors back then who are like Luther and just a totally trained and Augustinian monk person who knows his stuff, but he's feeling this himself, where for him, it was a very real issue. So that, that's just me encouraging people. Think about how this would have been felt at the time. It wasn't just a textbook for them, something going on far away. This was real people in real situations with real needs. And that's why I think Luther's story is so amazing. Uh, check out a biography of him, fascinating figure, just a, a lot of deep thought there. The, the second thing that I wanted to say, and I think, Connor, you brought this out so fantastically well, is that there, there's, I guess, development on Luther's part where people typically think 1517, that is Protestantism, that, that, uh, that story with the nailing of the theses on the door, that, that's a Protestant document. I've seen Protestant, uh, I guess, merchandise sellers or whatever they're called, clothing apparel, they'll send, uh, sell posters of the, the, the 95 theses as something Protestants, marketed to Protestants, can put on their wall. And I get it. I appreciate it. That's sort of like the moment we associate with Reformation. But yeah, reading through those lists, you, you get the impression, yeah, Luther is a guy in the Roman church, believing the things, and he's wanting to have a discussion within that context where I think people need to recognize, as you pointed out, from 1517, 1521, there is a lot of thought going on. And people, I think we need to get beyond the narrative of uh, thesis and then uh, Protestant church. We need to realize there was a development. And the third thing is that Luther gets a lot of attention, and I think with good reason. I think it might have been R.C. Sproul who said uh, the, the story of the Reformation is Luther and some other guys, where it's Luther is a dominating figure there. But I think we need to recognize, as you were saying, if it were just Luther, it would be a totally different story where it really is a story of the Holy Spirit's work and in a group of people. I like that you mentioned congregational. And of course, as a Baptist, I love, I love that word. But there is a sense in that this was a movement of God's people. And we need to recognize, and I think this is why you and I find church history so fascinating. There are stories there. There are people there that we forget about. And when you discover them, you find 
so much encouragement and so much uh, just more information, but also you get the, the witness that, hey, the Holy Spirit is working in a lot of people. It wasn't just one guy and he tricked everyone or he had such a charisma, everyone chose to follow him. There's a lot more going on there. And I don't think it can be explained without uh, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit of a person working in history. So Connor, fascinating history. People check out more of this. We're going to dive back in, but maybe one question. I don't know if this is something we wanted to talk about later, but you mentioned it a couple times now, the Book of Concord, that appears to be a big deal in Lutheranism. You mentioned how uh, Luther might not be totally reflected in there. I'll, I'll just mention, I, I have the bondage of the will right here. I grabbed it, but this is definitely where I could say, uh, and people know that uh, I, I would consider myself a Calvinistic Baptist, where uh, this is the only actual primary resource of Luther that I have as a hard copy, well, hard copy, yeah, as an actual physical book. And this was a, a gift, actually. So it wasn't on purpose, but there definitely is a story of how do Luther's, Lutherans relate to Luther, but also how do the broader Protestant families sort of appropriate and view him where I think it becomes easy to think, oh, Luther said that, and it sounds like he's a Calvinist here, therefore Lutherans, what are you doing? You're, 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 you're missing what your guy had to say, but as you mentioned, there's a lot more than just Luther, and it seems like this book of Concord, that's where a Lutheran would go and say, hey, no, that is the, the final product, or that's the canonical uh, authority of confessional authority, of course, in a sola scriptura Protestant sense. So maybe just talk about that a little bit. What is the Book of Concord? Sure. So the Book of Concord, <clears throat> it's a very, very, how would I put it, complicated relationship with Lutheranism itself. Mm -hmm. But when we just look at the, the Book of Concord, isolated, and it's hard to do that, apart from its history, apart from its acceptance in both uh, historic and contemporary eras. But if we just look at what it is, it is the catechism, small and large. It is the Augsburg Confession of Faith. It is the apology, the defense of the Augsburg Confession. It's the treatise on the power and the premacy of the Pope. It's the small called articles. It's the formula of concord, both larger and smaller forms, epitome and solid declaration. Now, this is what's called a confession of faith. Now, the, the difficult part is realizing this didn't all come, first of all, we have to realize this didn't all come at once. Um, just like that movement from 1517 to 1521, we have a movement in the Book of Concord itself. So we have the early documents, like the, the small, uh, the, the, sorry, the uh, small catechism and the Augsburg Confession. And then later we have a building and it's, it's been um, described by some naysayers as a long run on email thread of angry people. Um, but it's one sided too. That's the that's the worst part is that you don't even see what they're angry about per se. Nice. Uh, and that is kind of a fair description of how it reads. It doesn't read the way uh, you would read a different kind of a confession, uh, as you put it in the Reformed Church, right? Westminster uh, Confession or Belgic Confession or a Savoy Declaration or the 1689. It does not read like that. It does not read systematically at all. Uh, and so that's important to remember when we look at, for example, the Augsburg Confession. This was not a group of men sitting down to say, let's uh, put out a systematic declaration of the faith, but they were responding to 
in every single one of these documents, a specific need at a, at a specific time with specific language that had been developed at a specific point. And so you'll even notice there's differences between the uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession and the Formula of Concord. And uh, before any of the conservative Missouri senators get mad at me, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about them later, yeah. uh, but um, that's acknowledged in the formula of Concord. It says that, the, the, for example, the, the language of sanctification has been described in this way in the 90 or up until this point in the book of Concord, but now we're going to use it this way. So there's development even through the confessions themselves. And it's also important to realize that upon the book of Concord, certain uh, synods, for example, back then, uh, as you probably know, being of German heritage, Germany wasn't Germany, hmm. right? It was a bunch of different uh, areas. And so one area was Saxony, and we have a document called the Saxon Visitation Articles, and um, this was actually also confessed by the church in Saxony. And mm -hmm. so you have even within the churches that confess the whole book of Concord, even documents beyond that. Now, outside of Germany, it's a different story. For the most part, in Scandinavia and in the Baltic regions, they were confessing the Augsburg confession and the small catechism and then they just went with that because then they said you know because all of these things are circumstantial all of these things are situational these documents have nothing like they don't um reflect our problems they're just german problems mm. or they're just saxon problems we don't have these problems so why would we adopt this confession of faith and so that's one of the very different functions between the Lutheran confessions and the Reformed confessions is that they're not systematic in any way, shape or form, but they're totally situational, totally circumstantial. Um, now, when we break it down a little bit more, though, um, we have so we, we we're going to start with the uh, Augsburg confession. And this is the presentation of the evangelical, as they would call it. That's the, not meaning in the sense that uh, you would be an evangelical Baptist, but it specifically means Lutheran and, right. in this sense and, and Catholic faith, because they were also defending that. Mm. And it's, a, it's also a repudiation of what they saw as Roman abuses. And it's written as an ecumenical dialogue. Or an ecum oh, it was a dialogue. So it was presented to the Roman Catholics to plead our case and say, look, we are part of the Catholic Church. We are Catholic Christians, um, true to the historic faith. This is not a, a new thing. We didn't invent anything. Um, and so it's written as an ecumenical dialogue, not purely a polemic, not really even a systematic document. And the apology uh, or the defense of that same confession is, a, is an explanation. You could think of it as a commentary. And this arose when the Roman Catholics said, we don't like your, um, your confession of faith. Here are some problems with it. So we said here, okay, let's unfold it some more, explain to you what we really mean. Now, the treatise on the power and the primacy of the Pope was written as a supplement to that same confession. Um, the small catechism is the way that that confession of faith is to be taught. In the Lutheran churches, the large catechism is 10 sermons on the small catechism. It's not a bigger catechism, really. It's 10 sermons on the catechism. Now, the small called articles written by Luther himself were written to distinguish Lutheranism from the Roman Catholic faith. And then lastly, the formula of Concord. It's not so much a confession of faith in as a positive thing, but it's purely a, a, a repudiation of errors within within the Lutheran church, and it's a compromise between the two parties every time. Um, so the way that a lot of churches handle these things, it depends on their synod. 
That's what I would say. It depends firstly on what region they came from. I was listening to your episode with Alex and you mentioned the Lutheran churches and the Dutch churches and with the Dutch churches, their denominations come in waves, immigration waves. With the Lutherans you mentioned, it depends on what region of America they're from. That's true, but it's also true in Europe, right? Mm. So what confessions you confess, that depends firstly on what region of Europe your church came from and then what synod you're in in America, right? right? And there are um, also uh, uh, exceptions to this rule. For example, there are, I, I can think of one Scandinavian church at least that uh, did not confess anything other than the Augsburg Confession and the small catechism, but then they came in fellowship with a German church. And of course, the, uh, the Germans said, uh, if you want to be friends, you have to confess all of these. Uh -huh. uh, and so that's, that's how that went down, right? And so there, you know, there are different ways also of confessing uh, the Book of Concord and its, and its individual documents. This is a debate between conservatives and centrists and left-wing synods um, in confessing the Book of Concord or just confessing the Augsburg Confession as something either fixed in time Right. I don't want to oversimplify this and say it's either confessing it because it's biblical or insofar as that's more of a reform discussion. Right. But with the Lutherans, it's more of a it's more of a Hegel or no Hegel discussion. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at is this uh, something fixed in time that we ought to repristinate and just uh, bring back and bring back and bring back? Or are we to recognize that this was part of a conversation? It's very situational. It's very circumstantial. And the discussion has moved dynamically forward. And so we are to see this as a part of the discussion uh, in an ongoing uh, conversation. Mm. So there are those two kind of different ways and you put that on a spectrum if you like. And uh, so that's, it's, it's complex, it's complex. But those are the confessions, that's what we're working with. Yeah, and, and that, that is very helpful. And I'm glad that you outlined a few of the places where uh, I know online generally people will speak of confessional Protestant traditions and they'll lump together maybe a certain group of Baptists and of course the Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed and Lutherans, but I'm glad you mentioned when we say confessional people can mean different things with a different shade and even within certain traditions there are conversations about how exact how far do we take this or what exactly do we do with this we have these documents we we all respect but where do they fit in so it sounds like I'm glad you mentioned that as well with Lutherans. It, it does go beyond Germany. And of course, as you mentioned, Germany wasn't Germany back then. And I, I mentioned my family's from Germany. They're from a Roman Catholic part of Germany, the Rhineland, where nothing to do at all with Lutheranism and uh, certainly Protestantism at large. There is quite a, a bitter history there at some points, not quite to the level of, of Ireland or something like that, but there is a history there. So that that's helpful. And to hear hey, there was a, a Saxon sort of church going on or a synod and they had discussions with what was going on in the Baltic or in the, the Scandinavian countries. And I think that really plays into where we're going to dip into perhaps the modern scene, especially in North America and uh, feel free to talk about Europe. But I think that that's critical for people to remember. I see it online sometimes. People talk about uh, the German school or I think the Finnish school gets a lot of discussion. Yep. So there, there's different every denomination or tradition has different ways of framing perhaps their parties or streams of thought. It sounds like for Lutherans, it's uh, perhaps which synod and which region you came from or traced back to. So there's a lot there and we could go on for a lot. And there's a lot of history. I, I think I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about some of the that history in between Luther and those early days and perhaps uh, the contemporary soon, which we're going to get to now. I know with my more English evangelical roots, there was a lot of connection with uh, what was going on in Lutheranism 
after uh, the period of orthodoxy where you have uh, a lot of discussion. I think one of the works is True Christianity that was quite yep. popular in certain wings of Lutheranism. And there's some overlap there, yep. a lot of controversy. We won't get into it now, but we'll, I'll have you back on, Connor. But now maybe let's talk about Lutheranism today. There's a lot of synods. I know people here in our region of Canada, it seems like, at least in my part of the suburbs outside of the GTA, Lutheranism isn't super big. But when you get to some parts of Ontario, you'll find a lot of Lutheran churches and a lot of uh, a discussion, I suppose, if people are aware, there's uh, the Evangelical Lutherans, there's the Lutheran Church Canada, there's other synods, smaller synods, American connections. So it's a big, confusing picture if you're outside of those circles. So I'm, I'm going to give you the hard question of, uh, can you simply explain what is the denominational synodical landscape of Lutheranism? How does it all fit together? I, I don't know if that's too big for a, a question like this, but however you can answer, just uh, help us out here. Sure. So uh, in short, we want to break it up uh, four or five ways. We're okay. not going to say, uh, as maybe a Baptist could, you've got the conservatives, the liberals, and the centrists, although we could do that. Right. That's not as helpful with the Lutheran uh, landscape. And the reason why is because these synods were um, formed around theological interest and conviction and uh, direction. So especially in the way that they understood those confessions and the direction and purpose that they thought theology was going to have. So the first group we can talk about is, of course, the, the main line, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. Now, this is the main line, so we can say, yes, this is liberal. There are conservatives there. Uh, my seminary, all of my professors um, are in the ELCA, um, but they're not liberals, right? right. So it, it's not to say you're in the ELCA or ELCIC, you're instantaneously um, a Schleiermachian or even neo-Orthodox, right? It's not to say that at all. Um, but they are often categorized that way. Uh, you will see um, pride flags on their buildings often. They are most of the time open and affirming, but they do have uh, conscience clause and what they call the local option. You will find in the ELCA uh, that their Lutheranism is more influenced by a broader mainline theology with um, a lot of Lutheran influenced reformed. So we could look at Bart, Karl Bart. We could yeah. look at Jürgen Moltmann. Um, we could look at individuals such as that and say, yes, they have had a very profound influence. And also the, uh, um, oh, I forget, I, I can't speak French, but that certain group of Roman Catholics. So we're looking at Hans, uh, how do you say his name? Hans von er, Hans, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, however yeah. it goes, and yeah. Karl Karl Rahner and uh, Richard Rohr and uh, dudes like that. Mm. So they have had a uh, very large impact upon the ELC uh, in both Canadian and American uh, counterparts. Um, there are some solid theologians there as well. A breaking out of the ELC, though, you have the churches that are essentially the ELC continuing if you wanted to put it that way, which would tickle the ears of some Anglican listeners, perhaps. Right. Um, perhaps a certain Chinese Anglican listener. <laughs> yes. And that th those are where I would fall, right? So we wanted to say, yes, we, we, we want to continue that original 
um, uh, dream that we, uh, the original thing that we were doing um, with bringing what was the uh, Lutheran church in America and the American Lutheran church, one was Scandinavian, one was German, they brought them together, that became the ELCA and the ELCIC. Um, out of that, over different issues, for some of them, it was homosexual marriage. Mm. Um, for others of them, it was Episcopalianism, that, that because now the ELCA has Episcopal polity. Right. And so you saw churches leaving over different issues. And these churches are the Canadian Association of Lutheran Congregations, the Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ. I'm mm -hmm. in both of those. Yeah. And then you also have the Episcopal one, which is the North American Lutheran Church, which many people will have heard of that. It's smaller than the LCMC. Uh, and then you have the Augsburg Lutheran Churches. Uh, they're not Episcopal. Only one is Episcopal there. And so, of course, they, they left over different reasons. But for the most part, they all work together. We all have uh, one a single magazine. We all have one single publishing house. Uh, we have we swap our pastors a lot back and forth. Um, another big group that needs to be spoken about is the what's called the uh, the conservative Orthodox or the Synodical Conference churches. Now the Synodical Conference doesn't exist anymore. It's a historical term, but it is helpful to say all of these churches came from that one that one uh, communion, and that is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. That is the Lutheran Church of Canada, which is the Missouri Synod in Canada, for lack of a better term. You also have the American Association of Lutheran Congregations. And they actually, interestingly, came from that American Lutheran Church that later formed the ELCA, but they left before that. Uh, and they're in full fellowship with the Missouri Church. Now, on the other side, because we have two sides of this community, that's the Missouri side. On the other side, the more conservative side, we have two synods. They're in full fellowship with one another. This is the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. One is German, one is Scandinavian. Um, and it's the same with the, um, a lot of the Missouri uh, congregations. Some of them are uh, not. It's not like they have one kind of uh, Scandinavian Missouri thing, but a lot of them did come from Scandinavian churches, and then they joined in later. Now, another group, which is the last big group, this is the fourth big group, is um, the Pietists. Um, and so they're much more familiar to what uh, an uh, American evangelical context would be familiar with. Right. Uh, these are the American Free Lutheran Churches, the Church of the Lutheran brother, uh, Brethren, and the Lestadian Lutheran Church. Hmm. Um, and so these are guys you'll walk in and they'll be wearing a suit and tie often. Um, they'll very low church, uh, very emphasis, on, very, very big emphasis on a progressive sanctification that uh, is definitely influenced by a lot of American evangelicalism. And uh, for lack of a better term, you wouldn't really know the difference between them and, for example, a, a reformed church other than the communion perhaps right um and then the last group is all of the many micro synods mm. uh we could think here of one that's very popular now it's the uh, evangelical lutheran diocese of north america right um but there are others uh and they're simply too small to list them all but mm. we should just say and all of them right right yeah so so that that's very helpful and i, I think a lot of people listening they they might have picked up on a few things but i think the key takeaway there is there's a lot going on. There are different streams, but what we need to recognize is uh, as you dig into it, certain categories that we like to broadly apply to every Christian denomination or tradition won't exactly fit in Lutheranism where there are 
there's a particular history and geography going on there and of course theology and I think that also highlights maybe those terms while they work for maybe a quick conversation where are you coming from I think for every group that we're going to find those broad labels don't exactly fit I like that you mentioned with uh, I believe the ELCA that you'll people typically think yeah. oh that those are the the progressive super liberal Lutherans but of course as you mentioned you can find conservative theologians in there or however even conservative might not work but theologically orthodox people might be familiar that hey these are people that I might want to read even though I don't consider myself I would never be in that denomination or in that tradition kind of thing like that so there's a lot of nuance that needs to be addressed if we want to dig in deep and if you want to get into a more scholarly kind of who who's where and who should I be reading and that those kind of conversations so that that helps and I think people, if you're listening to this, and if you know a Lutheran, uh, just be aware that uh, not all Lutherans are the same. There are those distinctions there where we, we know from online that if you meet someone in the the Luth, uh, Evangelical Lutheran uh, Diocese of North America, I think whatever that one is, they could be very, very different from perhaps every other kind of Lutheran you might yes, meet. I, they're I very unique. They're very unique. I know a couple of them from the internet, and it's sometimes fascinating, sometimes like, I can't believe this is a real person, but they, they could be very <laughs> finicky about certain things, which I appreciate people have their convictions, but not all Lutherans are the same. And I think that's worth appreciating. Not all, ba yeah. sometimes I meet Baptists online. I'm sure people meet me online and they think, is this guy real? Is this guy kidding? But the different people with different uh, backgrounds. So that that's fascinating. And the yeah. other thing I really appreciated there is just recognizing again, that diversity. And Connor and I have been talking a bit during my last school year, I was reading a lot of Lutheran theologians in my class on the sacraments where I, I think most of the people I was reading were names you were familiar with. And in your circles, I, I apologize, I can't remember the names now, but uh, a few of the people there, and, and I have to say, I really appreciated it, where if I were to look at their denomination based on my uh, presuppositions about, oh, they're in the, the ELCA, those are the kind of Lutherans I want nothing to do with, but then I read some of these guys, and I thought, wow, they, these are some very astute thought, was it Yago, was that one of them? That, Diego, yeah, yeah Diego. Okay. so Diego, you mentioned Jensen, you mentioned Jensen, Brockton, yeah, Jensen you mentioned Paul Henlicky. Yeah. And all of these guys are in that um that centrist borderline camp that came out of the ELCA. Okay. That's in that so they're they're my folks. Right, right. right? Um I, but it is it is really important that you that you mention that. And if someone listens back to this, I'm sure they'll notice from when I was talking about the confessions through the synods, mm -hmm. they'll pick up on the fact that Lutheranism. Uh, even when it, if they go back to the history portion, it's not this kind of super institutional thing. It's a preaching movement. Right. And so when you meet a Lutheran on the street, uh, it, they might not even agree with the next Lutheran you meet on the street about the confessions mm. or the synods or ethics. What they do agree upon is the need for pastoral care and comfort of the soul. Right. That is the Lutheran heart. That's what makes you a Lutheran. It's, mm. recep it's reception. Yeah. So, so that, that I think is powerful. I think that really for a lot of people anyway, that might change the perception of what Lutheranism is and what it's about. And again, easy to get caught up. Oh, it's all about Luther or it's all about right. having hard doctrinal distinctions or uh, being firm on some things, but I think it's a pastoral heart. And that's something I've appreciated uh, even reading those, uh, those works in the sacraments class where I was expecting 
from a Lutheran, oh, they're going to have some 50 page document on uh, the real presence and, and things like that. But instead, it was like, how do we get the lay people to understand what this is and appreciate, again, the comfort and assurance? Those are all big features. So may, maybe that's the segue now. We heard about the history, the denominational landscape today. Uh, maybe, Connor, if you could just help us out here, a lot of people might hear this and still think, well, what did Lutherans, I understand they're pastoral and they have this great history, but what do they actually believe? So imagine, this is what I, I told Connor before, and I, I've been telling people on this, uh, the, this interview series, imagine you were at my Baptist church, someone comes up to you and says, mm -hmm. what, what's a Lutheran? What do they believe? So you have your confessions, of course, but if you were to highlight two or three, I guess, doctrinal streams or positions that really define the movement in contrast to other Protestant groups or even Roman Catholics, I, I think that might be the big one where people struggle to see the difference. What would you say Lutheran is about theologically? Yeah, theologically, what we want to say is we're, we're of course, this is where the comfort all comes from. Mm -hmm. So theology is a reception of gift. It's a reception of what's good. And forgive me, this is not going to be two or three, but it'll be quick. It'll yeah, be, no, no, no you. worries. So we're going to, we're to wrap it all up just at the beginning. So I can show you where we're going. We're going to the objectivity and universality of grace mm. so that every time it's administered to you, it's not a question of if it's there. It's not a question of, is this going to be efficacious? It's efficacious for everybody and it's efficacious every time. And we don't worry about how that works because of course someone will say, but people go to hell. Yeah. We, we don't know why we don't know how, what we know is that what's promised is objectivity and universality. And that's going to be given to you every single Sunday, every time you come uh, before the pulpit, every time you come to receive the body and blood of Christ, every time you remember your baptism, that grace is like that, that cup that's overflowing. It's ever flowing. And, and so this is how we're doing it. We're going to start at the theology of the cross. This is what we call it, the theology mm -hmm. of the cross over and against the theology of glory. Now, when I was a Calvinist, I thought theology of glory, this is when I first met a Lutheran pastor. That sounds good. That sounds great. How could you deny that? You hate the glory of God? Or you must be some kind of uh, degenerate or something. <laughs> right. But now, now I understand it. Um, and what helped me to understand it uh, from when I was first interested in Lutheranism in 2017 and met my first Lutheran pastor and attended my first Lutheran service was that moving forward, as I started to do uh, more uh, ministry as a student, working in fieldwork in churches and doing internships, I realized, oh, man, um, there's a lot of suffering here. There's a lot of misunderstanding here. There's a lot of doubt here. And so the theology of the cross brings us to that point. And, and it says, for example, in the Heidelberg Disputation, um, the gospel, so the law says do this and it's never done, right? But the gospel says believe that it is already done for you, mm. right? So this, this is the theology of suffering, the theology of God on the cross, right, for you. So this is not some kind of high above God that you can't see, but it's the God who has become a human being like you to suffer for you, to die for you, and to rise for you. Uh, and this is where we're starting. That's our starting point, the suffering of God for you, the incarnation of God, and then an incarnational gospel. And then we want to move on to the distinction, the proper distinction, not separation, of law and of gospel. Earlier, I said, the law says do this, and it's never done. That is command, that's promise, and that's threat, and that's offer of reward for thee, do this, and it's never done. That its purpose is to kill. Its purpose, Paul says, is to increase sin. And uh, the gospel, on the other hand, it hands to you freely everything. 
right? So there is no reward in the gospel that you have to do anything for. It's not an opportunity. It's not hypothetical. It's a finished and free gift. This is where we're moving theologically. We are not mixing the two. So we are not saying the gospel is true if you do X. Nor are we saying you are saved or you're justified by faith alone and saved by faith and works. We're not saying that either. And we even had a, a controversy over that in the formula of Concord called the majorism controversy. You can go look that up. Um, and then we're going to move on to what's called the, uh, the solas or the soli. Uh, but instead of having five, like you do, my dear friend, Christian, yes. we have three uh, and uh, we don't even have a, uh, all three that you have, we change one of them from oh. sola scriptura. This is a common mistake, right? Uh, from sola scriptura to sola verba. And oh. we do that for several reasons. Perhaps you can think of all of them uh, right off the bat, but the word for one is Christ. Christ is received in the preaching and the reading of the scriptures. Yes, but also in the sacraments. Mm. Okay. So we want to emphasize this, and then we're going to go to solus Christus. It's him alone. He's the, he's the word. He's the verba. So in a sense, we don't really even need sola verba because it's solus Christus. And then we move to sola fide and faith alone. Now we're not saying we don't like the other ones. We're just saying we never historically accepted them. Um, then we're moving to the means of grace. How does the word who is Christ come to us? He comes to us through word and through sacrament. And he does that efficaciously. He does what it says it does, right? So it's a, it's a funny word is a speech act. A speech act, this doesn't mean some kind of liberal doctrine that was invented by a French philosopher or something. What this does mean is kind of like when a boss says you're fired, he's firing you by saying you're fired. Or in a marriage, Luther used this analogy too. Uh, I didn't uh, sign a paper to become a husband. But when my wife said she takes me to be her husband, I then became her husband through that speech act. And just so as when the word of God uh, spoke and light was, he said, let there be light. And there was. So he says to me, you, I declare you just and I am. And this is how the word works. This is how the sacraments work. Lord's Supper, baptism. If you want to add confirm, or, uh, confession to that, you can. But it's insofar as uh, that's an extension of our baptism. And then we want to move on to the effect of the human person. We call this universal objective justification. So the, the word who is Christ, he affects our salvation, not by uh, telling us about it, but by doing it. And he does this on the cross. So when you say to a Lutheran, when were you saved? They're not going to say, well, I had a conversion experience in 2006. They're not even really going to go back to the cross, though they could. And this is a, a, a universal objective justification, but even more so, they're going to go back to the predestination of God and to say, God chose me in Christ. And I know this because Christ was on the cross and he did it and he accomplished that salvation for me. And right there, as that blood hit the sand under the cross of Golgotha, that my sins were washed away, just as the blood of the atonement lambs and the sheep and the goats and the ox and the bulls were sprinkled upon the altar. So now this is sprinkled upon, up, upon me and I'm cleansed of sin. And so we're coming back now to the universality and the objectivity of grace. So we have theology of the cross, distinction between law and gospel, uh, the means of grace, the solas, um, and the objectivity of justification. And that brings us then to the church. What is mm -hmm. the church? Well, with you Baptists, we agree it's not the unbelievers. And uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's also not uh, inst uh, synonymous with the institution. 
Mm. Right. So the, the, the church are those believers and you can, it has an institution, it has word and sacrament. And we're not saying the institution is like the organization and the, uh, the membership uh, slip that you sign or whatever. Um, it's not the member's role. As we know, as people who work in churches, uh, most people on the member's role don't actually show up at most churches. Um, so, right. It's the believers who are there, who are receiving um, that, those things instituted by Christ. That is the church, both here and in heaven. And then so that brings us to what we are. We are evangelical Catholics. We are traditional Protestants. Some call us the conservative Reformation, but at root, we are uh, gospel uh, folks. That's mm. about it. That, that is amazing, Connor. That, that is fantastic. I have to say that that really summarizes it so well. And I think people listening again, you, you might miss some of that. There was a lot there. And the beauty of a recording is that please feel free to listen to that again. If you miss something, just click back the time a couple minutes, you'll hear it all again. But already there, I think we're hearing so much of what makes Lutheranism such just a, a fantastic Protestant tradition where a lot of people, I know the long gospel distinction, a lot of non-Lutherans will say, hey, there's a lot of great there we need to think about. And of course, all the things building into comfort. And I, I think and I'll say it now, I'm not sure if I'll cut this out, but I probably won't. I'm not writing down notes, but an idea came to my head, have a panel in the future on the solas and how we put those together, how we word those. That is a fantastic conversation. I'm glad you brought that up and that change there. It really does add a nuance that I think brings out Lutherans, uh, I guess, emphases on this word and sacrament, which that might be another fantastic panel. I'm thinking about it. How do we make sense of word and sacrament in church? So Fantastic. That's great. And maybe you'll have to bear with me. I, I thought of something right at the start where you said, considering Lutheranism in 2017, and here we are now, 2021, with you explaining Lutheranism on my podcast, there has to be some sort of connection there with 1517 and 1521. I'm not super into any sort of magical numbers or anything like that, but rather auspicious, I would say. But that's, that is auspicious. Yeah, this is the, uh, the diet of Zoom. Yeah, the diet of Zoom. There, there you go. That's going to have to make it into the uh, episode description. But Connor, thank you for explaining that. People, again, if you're interested, I'm sure I'll talk to Connor later. He already mentioned his different shows with information and systematics and Bible studies, that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in hearing more about the theology and different things like that, I'm sure we'll have helpful links down below for people to dig in. But I, I guess to to bring this to a, a place of conclusion now, I know we've talked about, I, I suppose, more abstract things, the history, the denominations, the theology. Let, let's close on the practical with what's a Lutheran church service like? What is going on in actual Lutheran church circles and things like that? Yeah. So maybe you could just walk us through. Uh, I, I have two questions here. First of all, what what's happening on a Sunday morning or whenever you meet for a church? I don't know if you have an evening service as well, but what's happening in a church service? So if I were to visit, what would I see? And then later on, I'll ask you what what else in addition to a church service is going on in a Lutheran church family? So let, let's start with the, the service. What What's going on there? What do you call it a service or is there another name that you use in Lutheranism? Maybe start there. Sure. Um, <clears throat> just before I begin, this is where all of what we've been speaking about comes to the concrete. Yeah. So this is where the boots of grace come onto the ground and they come and meet you and they hand you with the flesh of Christ. Mm. Um, so this, this, yeah, we call it the, uh, the divine service, yeah. the Gottesdienst. Um, this is really important to us because what it says from the, from the get go, this is not about you serving God. Mm. 
This is not about you coming to whisper into his ear some sweet nothings about how great he is. This is him coming to the to the deathbed of the hospital and reviving dead, broken sinners and sending them out on their way, only knowing that they're going to come back next week again. Um, so, okay. Right. So, so uh, from the, from the forefront, every single thing in the Lutheran liturgy, it is about God uh, being for you, uh, serving you. What that looks like, we confess doesn't matter. Um, or I should say offer so that the conservative guys don't get mad at me for saying doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> so what we mean by offer is indifferent. Whether you think indifferent means doesn't matter or means matters very much, uh, I forgive you for uh, disagreeing with me, whatever. But um, so it, it can generally look like um, a mix between a Roman Catholic church um, or a high church Anglican uh, congregation, maybe a little bit lower than that. But it can also look like uh, Christian's church on a Sunday. It can look very evangelical. So you can come into a church, you can have low church, you can have high church, to use the Anglican terms. Right. Uh, you can have contemporary worship, you can have hymns, you can have uh, exclusive psalmody. I know a congregation that does that. Wow. Uh, you can have a rock band, you can have a cappella, you can have a, an organ, you can have a piano, you can have a worship team. Some pastors will wear an album stole. That's the white robe and the clothy thing, the, the dishcloth, the glorified dishcloth. <laughs> and then the somewhere suit and tie, a somewhere suit and collar, somewhere what's called a towel robe. That's the black robe. Some know this as the Genevan gown or the mm. academic robe, uh, preaching robe, you might see it advertised as somewhere a cassock and a surplus, kind of more like the Anglicans or the Scandinavians do. Mm. Um, and this also has to do with regional stuff. Uh, so be because it is Adiaphora in Germany, um, they are much lower church. They generally wear the black robes, which you would call a Genevan gown. I'm, I'm probably guessing correctly about that yeah. um, if you saw one. And then in Scandinavia, uh, much different. Uh, just to put it that way, much different, very Roman Catholic, very, very high church in Scandinavia. Um, and those things are reflected in America. Um, so if you wanted to look for a high church congregation, you're generally looking at the ELCA or the ELCIC or the LCMS, right? Wells tend to be lower church. Um, my churches tend to be lower church. That's the borderline, guys. The NALC tends to be a little bit higher church, um, just to, again, use those Anglican terms again. But even in the LCMS, even in the ELCA, you will find churches that have contemporary worship, rock bands, smoke, smoke machines, and everything, right? right? And uh, the funny thing is, in the center of the church is an altar. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you know, you, you might have Hillsong sung, but then when, when, when it comes time, uh, you will be ushered to the front to do uh, the altar call. So, believe it or not... We are secretly Baptists. Ah, and there you you're go. Going to come there and to uh, confess the faith again by receiving Christ um, in your hand or in your mouth, whatever. Uh, generally in the hand, though, uh, mm. especially if you've just been singing Hillsong. Yeah, um, I'd imagine so. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so it can look like a lot of things, but the things you will always get and you should always expect from a Lutheran church, whether low church or high church, at the very least, is the confession and absolution, the word read and preached, um, prayer the benediction and the sacraments. Mm. Those things are, and this is very similar to what the Calvinists would call the regulative principle of worship. We have the elements of worship, 
And then we have the circumstances of worship. The only difference is that, um, sorry, somebody's calling me. The only difference is that we label them and list them differently. Uh, outside of that, in our own personal lives, just like the Reformed have family worship, we have a personal kind of what we call the monkhood of all believers, kind of mm. like the priesthood of all believers, but it's better because it's every day. And uh, so this is what's called the liturgy of the hours. The Anglicans, I believe, call them the daily offices. At mm. the very very least, uh, every single one of our servant service books has what's called matins, morning prayer, vespers, evening prayer, and compline, nighttime prayer. But we do have breviaries, which go through all of the uh, hours of the day, which are more than three, frankly. Um, mm. And so, our, you know, to speak of our preaching, because that's also something that people probably have in mind, or they say, well, Lutheran sermons, they're probably so small. That, again, depends on the region and the synod. Right. Uh, so you have, uh, I won't mention them, so one of them tends to preach under 10 minutes. One, right. Another one of them tends to preach between 10 and 20. Another one tends to preach between 20 and 30. Another uh, 30 to 45 and another 45 to an hour. Wow. If you go and just Google that up a bit, go, listen to different sermons from different synods, you'll figure out very quickly which ones are which. Um, hmm. So, and, and in the same way as, as the length of the sermon is also audiophora, as we say, indifferent. Right. Some would say it doesn't matter, uh, to put it in common parlance. Um, the administration of the sacrament of the supper can be once a week. It can be twi twice a month. It can be once a month, once every two months. It can be quarterly, right? So those things you don't know. Uh, what you do know is you're going to be served with grace. That's all you know. Um, and uh, if you live in a, in a region where there's a lot of evangelicals, expect the church will probably look like a lot of evangelical things and influences. If it's in a very Catholic area, will likely be higher church. Mm. Um, if it's in a very reformed area, that's where the EP congregation is. Right. So, huh. yeah, we're, basically, because it's audio offer, it's taking on the familiarity of the people around them. Right. So and, and that is, again, fascinating, the diversity there. And sorry, you mentioned someone's calling you. Do you need to take a call or, or go? No, 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 oh, no. OK, OK, fantastic. So, yeah, that I think really explains a lot. And again, I apologize. A lot of my experience with Lutheranism does come from online. So you, you find a certain kind of theologically driven person online who will present things very differently. So as you're saying it here and you're actually boots on the ground in the church, living amongst the people at a Lutheran school interacting. So there's a lot of diversity and it is treated in such a way where there is almost an expectation of depending on the culture around you, there is yeah. a bit of a, a, I guess to use Tim Keller's word, there's a contextualization going on there where if you're in a Catholic area, it looks more Catholic or reformed, a bit more reformed. And, and that explains a lot. So I remember reading a paper about the Black Genevan piety of, I think, the Wisconsin Lutherans, yep. where they took that on and it was very much high church. No, thank you. We're doing it. It, it felt like they were doing it like the reformed. And I know uh, I see it more so online and talk almost familiar with the worship wars where some people in the LCMS are concerned about the contemporary worship. We need to bring back the the higher church and that might be different parts of the geography and more Catholic areas, maybe resenting what's going on in more urban areas. I'm not sure, but I, I do see that diversity. And I think you explain why that is so well. It's a recognition. We have certain core things that we need to do, but then how that gets played out, there is a recognition that can look different. It can smell different or sound yeah. different. So 
that that I think is familiar, especially to a lot of Baptists, where uh, there's a joke online about Baptists in Georgia and Baptists in Georgia, where in, <laughs> in the country of Georgia, they look very Eastern Orthodox. I think that would surprise people. And uh, of course, there are some theological questions there. And then people can, can imagine what Baptists in the Deep South in Georgia look like, where both Baptists, but very different looks. And it sounds like that's Lutheranism, but a lot more prevalent, where different regional distinctions come out, but you're still going to get that sermon, that benediction, and of course, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, whatever. I, sorry, I can't remember what, what term you used to describe Both of those are great. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So that, and you'll still, still get that with the theology thereof. And I loved how you explained that people. I hope you heard that with the divine service. It's what God's doing. And I think that ties in again with the pastoral comfort side and the objectivity and universality you mentioned with the Lutheran theology. And maybe it's on that point. I'm sorry to do this, but uh, just in case anyone listens to this interview and this interview alone, I want to make it clear. I am a Baptist. Connor is a Lutheran. We have disagreements, but this episode, we're just hearing from Connor. And then that that's what it is. If you want to find a debate between a Lutheran and a Baptist, you can find that so many places online, so many different Facebook groups, Discord servers. We're just hearing, we're learning today. So Connor, thank, thank you for so much for explaining that. And uh, you mentioned the monkhood of all believers. That is fascinating to me, <laughs> that distinction there. But And that, that might uh, be something people didn't realize about Lutherans. And maybe that's, again, depending what Lutherans are around you, you'll get very different kinds of Lutherans, where I imagine... Uh, the praying the hours might not be so common in more evangelical kind of pietist circles. And maybe mm -hmm. it is another one. So that that's fascinating to me. And I, I guess the, the final question I'll end off on now, uh, Baptists will typically call, I, I hear the joke, uh, Wednesday is our second Lord's day, our second Sabbath with our, our prayer meeting or our second service kind of thing like that. And we have Bible studies throughout the week and those kind of issues, small groups, and we'll call those small groups, life groups, or, or things like that. So maybe what, what else is going on? Uh, I, I imagine Lutherans do uh, confirmation classes, given your understanding of the church. So what other kind of things are, are churches doing when it comes to fellowship and believers getting together? Yeah, so of course, throughout the week, you know, uh, again, this depends because it's audiophora. So it's right. going to, it's a, we're all about uh, worshiping in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. so to speak, and living in the vernacular. And so this is going to look like who's around you and what influences your congregation has. Um, you might have uh, an evangelical extemporaneous prayer meeting. Mm -hmm. You might have a prayer service of one of those, you know, Matins, Vespers, um, Compline at a congregation right. weekly. You might have that, especially in Catholic areas. Um, you often have a Bible study, whether that's on a midweek day or on a Sunday or both. Um, that, again, depends on your congregation. And, of course, confirmation classes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. But the important thing is to remember, of course, because these are audiophora, uh, and we live in North America where everything is uh, whatever goes, essentially, and there's so much diversity that uh, you can have something look one way on one half of the town, and it will look so different on the other. Right. You, know, you have Georgia, and you have Georgia, yeah. as you said. Um, and, and so... I know some congregations where their confirmation class has no children at all. It's really in all ages, but all the children are gone. And so they just do confirmation, not to confirm anybody, but they do catechesis study every single week. 
Mm. I know other congregations who would uh, be, they would be revolted at the idea of an extemporaneous prayer meeting, and they would only have the prayer service, right? Because they'd say, prayer meeting, what do you mean I'm going to come and uh, give God all these things? What is God doing for me? You know, these, so you have these different perspectives, you have these different ways of understanding things, ways of living and worshiping and living in the vernacular. Mm. So, and, and that I think really helps clear up what, again, a lot of people's ideas about Lutheranism, if you're from a certain area and you're thinking, oh, Lutherans are very Catholic, that might be because in that area, they look very Catholic and they wouldn't like the evangelical prayer service. Or maybe if you're thinking, oh, Lutherans are just uh, German evangelicals, you might be from a part of town where that's the kind of church situation. So that, Connor, I have to say, that's my big takeaway today, where you really explain the diversity that I think we see in Lutheranism, where no one uh, I guess stereotype of Lutheranism will fit. And I know, a, a, I believe a Swedish Lutheran online, they posted a picture of their church. And I thought this is the highest church I've ever seen in my life. And then of course, I, as I mentioned, I read that paper and I know some Lutheran sort of chapels in this area here where, yeah, I, I go in there and I'm expecting probably something that looks very Puritan, I would imagine. So yeah. that, that diversity is amazing. And I think it again, speaks to the theology and where, where you're going to put here, here is what we're about. And it's not necessarily the form. It's this concept of grace and how a person receives it objectively. So again, that is fantastic. There's a lot more I'm sure we could say now we're going to have to have you back on in the future gets get into some of those historical points and different uh, ideas of terminology and theology. So maybe for now, as we close, this is something I do with all my guests, I want to give you an opportunity to share one reflection or encouragement or something along those lines for my audience. It doesn't have to be specifically Lutheran. It could be a book recommendation, but anything you have on your mind just to leave us with as we move on from this interview. Yeah, well, the most Lutheran thing that I can leave with all of you is just to pronounce uh, that the forgiveness of all of your sins has been accomplished in Christ Jesus, hmm. and that uh, you now have peace through the flesh of Christ uh, to go out in your weeks and serve your neighbor for them, not for yourself and not for God, uh, and to live in the light of Christ and his cross and hmm. the peace that he's given you. Hmm. Praise God. That, that is a fantastic <laughs> encouragement to leave people with. And I'm sorry to say, as you said that, I realized another big thing that people in my circles know Lutherans for is the doctrine of vocation, which uh, I think a lot of people get from there. There are certain Lutheran figures which talk about how we relate to the world and our work. And as, as you said, that serving your neighbor, that came to mind. But let, let's save that for another time. Let's leave it yeah. on what you just said there. That's fantastic. So Connor, thank you for coming on. I think everyone learned a lot. They have, a, I'm sure, a lot of information, a lot of questions. So as I always say, please, if you have any questions about Lutheranism, about anything Connor said, if something Connor didn't mention and you want to hear a bit more about, leave a comment down below. Connor and I will be talking. And if you have a question, I'll make sure that he gets it and he can respond. We want to keep the conversation going, but that's it for now. Thanks again, Connor. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening again. Leave those questions. Let's keep it going. And I'll see you next time here on Christian's Colloquy. Take care. <laughs>